Coming up on Tech Nation, fishermen, immigrants, bigotry, justice, and environmental pollution. It's all in The Fisherman and the Dragon. Fear, greed, and a fight for justice on the Gulf Coast. I speak with Kirk Wallace Johnson, and we'll hear how this four-decade saga all played out. Then on Biotech Nation, Dr. Hernan Bisson, the co-founder and CEO of South Rampart Pharma in New Orleans. They're working on the next generation of pain relief, non-opioid pain relief. The goal is equally powerful relief without addiction. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. We've all seen little restaurants that were jammed with customers, and then they doubled the space or moved to a larger spot, and before you know it, they fail. In 2014, Stanford professors Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao came together to write Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. I asked them, what happens there? There's a couple of things that happen. One of the first things that comes to mind to me is you've got just sheer cognitive load. In fact, we've got a great example down where we are. Uh, on the peninsula in the Bay Area, there was a restaurant called John Bentley. It was a great restaurant in a place called Woodside, California. He opened the second one, and literally the load of having to keep two places going was more than he could take. So that that's one thing that um, causes... They both failed? No, no. He actually sold one to the employees, and now there's just John Bentley in Redwood City. So that was, that was a little bit too much cognitive load. The other thing that happened, which is our um, argument is that uh, it's one thing to have excellence in one place, but what scaling is for us is taking scaling from um, excellence from where it is to where it isn't. It, it actually, it works for John Bentley's a little bit too. The excellence didn't quite spread to the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. That idea of sort of multiplication um, is, is part Maybe of Maybe the first Starbucks was really fantastic and none of us knew it. It, it might have been. It might have been. So, so Huggy, what's, what else are your thoughts about this since you've studied these sort of situations? In the, the first uh, interesting challenge is if you're a restaurant, uh, you could argue for some kinds of restaurants, scale is actually the enemy of excellence. Uh, because the smaller you are, uh, and usually the fewer items you have on the menu, the more consistent your quality of execution, and you're also letting customers know, hey, we're exclusive. It's hard to get in here. The moment you scale, you're, of course, saying we're not exclusive, but the difficulty is typically the number of dishes on the menu go up, and if you're trying to execute on all of those fronts, that's tough to do. So you can almost see it coming if you understand what the profile is. When we actually talk about In-N-Out Burger and McDonald's in our book as sort of like a comparison, as you get bigger, the simpler you keep it, the easier it is to replicate. So In-N-Out Burger is a perfect example. But the problem is that as you move into different markets, there's pressure for customization. So that's why there's only In-N-Out Burgers in the United States and, in fact, most of the Western United States. But McDonald's, which are all over the world, they'll have different customization to meet the market. Everybody, if you travel around the world, you, you go into the McDonald's to see what's there. You see you see wine in Portugal. Right, right, right. <laughs> you see fish hot exactly. dogs in Japan. Exactly. It's like, I think your discussion of Home Depot going to China totally bears repeating. Most of us in the United States know Home Depot is the definitive do-it-yourself store. So and you can do it. You can do it. And, and they took that model without really any change, opened a dozen stores in a do-it-for-me culture, 
which is which is China, and uh, and they tried to convince the Chinese that really you want to do it yourself, and they went out of business. And uh, you know, one of my uh, really w- w- out of business. Out of it, there's not a single home. They're all twelve clo- are closed. And Chao Wang, one of my uh, uh, doctoral students, um, or actually master students who grew up um, in China, said so in China. If you're rich enough to shop at Home Depot, you're rich enough to hire somebody to do it for you. Plus, they don't have the culture. And, and the opposing case is IKEA, which is, you know, I actually can't stand buying IKEA furniture. And um, for I don't know about you, but for me, all my personal relationships with my wife, the most trying times have been trying to assemble that stuff. If a screwdriver is there, you might get a divorce. Yeah, there you go. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff. But, but, but in China, where it's the do-it-for-me um, culture, they are doing great. And they have delivery services and they have assembly services at a much higher level than the U.S. And that challenge, when you're spreading, is is something. I mean, we see it with little groups where they just will add just three or four more people. How much more do we insist that everybody be exactly a clone? And how much do we allow them to customize for their own preferences? And and, and when it comes to spreading excellence, it's it's a big challenge for the smallest or the largest organization or just a team. This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao features their book, Scaling Up Excellence, named to the best business book list of The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Forbes, and The Washington Post. Bob and Huggy are still professors at Stanford, and they're still the best of friends. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, a four-decade real-life saga of fishermen, immigrants, bigotry, justice, and environmental pollution. We'll hear from Kirk Wallace Johnson, the author of The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. Then on Biotech Nation, Dr. Ernan Bassan from South Rampart Pharma in New Orleans. We'll talk about its work in attempting to create equally effective non-opioid pain relief, all with the target of avoiding addiction. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Kirk Wallace Johnson. Kirk, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. Now, everybody needs to know that this book is nonfiction, but it's it's got the story arc of a multi-decade, multiple-storyline novel, which, in fact, is how life really is when you think about it. Uh, all things developing at once, and each is a big story, but they have to be interwoven, if you will, into a larger uh, fabric, and it reads like a thriller. So everybody, listen, this is not fiction we're talking about. <laughs> I wanted to make sure everybody understood this. And uh, it is a fabric that is very authentic and very American. I wanted to stop at a few places and just sort of lay out what it was like at particular moments. And I thought I'd start out by asking you to take us back to the mid-1970s to describe Sea Drift. It's a tiny town on Galveston Bay on the 
Gulf Coast of Texas before the post-Vietnam refugee fishermen arrived and include the greater Galveston area. And that includes the port of Galveston, which moves tons of crude oil and any number of petrochemical plants. The EPA was just five years old, and it just hadn't done much, just started. Uh, Cars didn't have catalytic converters. Uh, Gas didn't have ethanol. Oil tankers didn't have double hulls to prevent spills. And in sea drift, most everybody was white. Yes, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, this coastline, the Sea Drift is one of many tiny little towns that are almost sort of abandoned now at this point. But uh, at the time that the events of the book start uh, in the mid 70s, there were about eight or 900 people that lived in this little town. And the town was split between uh, crabbers and shrimpers, some of whom who had been there for, for generations. Uh, that would go out for, you know, six or eight hours a day and run their traps and, you know, drop their nets. And then the other half of town worked at those petrochemical plants. Uh, There were oil refineries along this coastline. There are, you know, plastic manufacturers, every kind of, you know, heavy duty industrial chemical you can imagine is coursing along that coast. And these were pretty economically depressed times. This was the period of the, you know, the great inflation. Uh, There were gas spikes and it was really, you know, becoming hard for a lot of these fishermen to break even out on the water. So things weren't great in the sort of what, you know, what they'll call it, the forward march of mankind. We were, you know, pouring concrete for highways over the estuaries Uh, We were impounding fresh water from the rivers that used to feed those bays and giving that water to these petrochemical plants, along with the permits that they needed to discharge that water with a bunch of toxic stuff in it back into the bays. So, you know, there's a kind of idyllic, romantic image of the the, the shrimper, the Gulf Coast shrimper who goes out early in the morning and, and casts his nets. But that way of life was already under attack from all fronts at that point. Now, the first part of your book explains how the Vietnamese came to Sea Drift and would take any job, of which there were few. There were some that were especially bad. And they worked themselves into this fisherman hierarchy. As you said, crabs and shrimp. Well, anybody could really pull crabs, but you had to have some capital to bring in shrimp. And uh, the higher you were up on the chain, the more money you made. That's where the problem started, or so the white fishermen believed without knowing what mutant crabs and shrimp kept showing up in their halls. Was it just, uh, could be anything, or it could be something very specific? Yes, that's right. It's a, you know, when when the Vietnamese first came to Texas, a lot of them had been crabbers and shrimpers back home, and that's partly why they picked Texas as their place to rebuild their lives. And, you know, at first, things were so bad economically that the whites were pretty happy that the Vietnamese were there because they were able to unload these decrepit old boats on the Vietnamese, often, you know, playing them for suckers. Um, but the, you know, the Vietnamese, as you said, they worked hard and they, they fixed these boats up. They used family members as deckhands. And when they were denied access to to lines of credit from the local banks, they just loaned each other money. And before long, they they graduated 
out of these lower steps of like oystering and crabbing into shrimping where the bigger paydays were. And that progress of the Vietnamese provoked a very quick backlash amongst the white fishermen that had traditionally dominated this industry. They were so, the Vietnamese quickly became so good at this that by the late seventies, so a few years after their arrival into Texas, um, a number of white uh, fishermen and their organizations went to the Texas governor and they begged for a ban on refugees. And when the governor told them, sorry, I can't, I don't have that authority, even if I wanted to do it, the Ku Klux Klan entered the fray. Um, and so this was very quickly a, a combustible uh, and, and racist situation where these Vietnamese who, you know, it's crazy to me that I have to say this sometimes, but, you know, nobody wants to become a refugee. None of us would would want to be driven from our country. There's this kind of myth that anyone that comes here who's an immigrant is doing so because they're here to steal our jobs or they, you know, things weren't great for them back home and they just, you know. And so these Vietnamese, like, they, you know, with all love to Galveston Bay and, and the rest of the Texas coastline, like, they didn't want to be there, but they, they weren't going to just sit around and, and take welfare. And so they started working. And they were doing everything that they had the legal right to do, but they quickly found themselves in the crosshair of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, what's interesting to me about that this part of the story, and it's only the first part, is that here you are in tiny sea drift. Things come to a head. There's a very famous incident. There's a very famous tr trial. That has been well covered elsewhere and in your book. Uh, and we went through all of that in the book, and the KKK had not even yet showed up. Uh, so you can expect human understandings, human frailty, turmoil based on what people believe. But what keeps this story going at this point is that you just never knew who was a member of the KKK, which drives us to the second part of this story. That's right. So there was, as you mentioned, a, a, a kind of shocking uh, killing that happened in this small town uh, after a white crabber who was just out for the Vietnamese and blamed them for all of his misfortunes, kept harassing and, and pummeling this Vietnamese refugee who finally drew a pistol and shot him dead. And everyone expected that Vietnamese refugee to be, you know, given the death penalty. But through a kind of astonishing turn of events, he was acquitted by an all-white jury in a very conservative part of Texas on, on grounds of lawful self-defense. And so while some people will read that as an inspiring sort of testament to the, the justice system, what it did was it, it turned that white crabber into a martyr, and it also brought the Klan into this story. And the Klan, the head of the Klan decided he's going to go to Sea Drift to do a fact-finding mission to look for irregularities because he started alleging a kind of a government conspiracy to withhold evidence and all of this. And that really is where the gear shifts in this book, because for so long, nobody nobody knew why the Klan cared about the death of this crabber, why they were involving themselves. Uh, it wasn't until 40 years later when I, I found his widow and that I was able to kind of solve that mystery because she, uh, you know, confessed to me that they had joined the Klan uh, a year or so prior to the killing. But from that point on, the head of the Klan, Louis Beam, um, you know, when he involved himself in this conflict, he was 
in the New York Times. He was, Walter Cronkite was covering him. He was getting national news coverage. And every time he went on TV, he would get new members who would pay dues to the Klan. And so about 15 or 18 months later, after that killing, the tensions were again at a boiling point up in Galveston Bay. And uh, lo and behold, here comes Lewis Beam and the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan again. Uh, and what unfolded was a sh shocking, I mean, I, I wrote the book and I still can't believe this all happened. Um, but a, a shocking campaign of, of violence and, and harassment by the Klan. And as you said, many, many, many white sympathizers who now will tell me that they hated the Klan and wanted nothing to do with it. But back then they were at Klan rallies where people were chanting white power and, and, and threatening uh, violence against these Vietnamese unless they fled. And so that really the second the, you know, the middle passage of the book involves ultimately a, a, a terrifying 90 day sequence where the Klan gave the Vietnamese 90 days to get out or else face blood, blood, blood. Um, they did this by, they backed up their threats by torching Vietnamese boats. Um, there were guns flashed at Vietnamese shrimpers and their family throughout town. Shots were fired at Vietnamese homes. Um, and astonishingly, I mean, in addition to, you know, a rally where a thousand plus people are, are railing against the, the evils of immigration and, and of Vietnamese refugees, the Klan conducted boat patrols throughout Galveston Bay where you know, imagine a shrimp trawler with a dozen armed and robed Klansmen uh, marauding through the bay under with an effigy of a Vietnamese refugee hanging from an outrigger, all of that under the, the flag of the Confederacy. Um, this was a, an appalling, shocking uh, campaign. And we're not talking about the 50s or 60s here. This is 1981 when this happened. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Kirk Wallace Johnson. You may have read his work in the New York Times and the New Yorker. You might also know him from his earlier books, including The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century. He's here today with The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and the Fight for Justice in the Gulf Coast. Now let's talk about another part of your story, about the plants in these Early EPA days, the names are very recognizable. Dow Chemical, Union Carbine, Ineos Chemical, Invista DuPont, Alcoa Aluminum, and Formosa Plastics. And Formosa Plastics. Why are these plants in this location? And it also brings us back to the born and bred Seadrift resident, Diane Wilson. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure your audience will remember that, I mean, oil was discovered in Texas and over the subsequent decades after that discovery, I think it was in 1903, um, this industry sprung up along that Texas coastline, uh, coastline. And as you said, it was every kind of, it wasn't just refineries, it was every kind of industrial input and chemical you needed. So I think something like 60% of all plastics were for America were manufactured just in Galveston Bay. Um, and 
the these kept metastasizing along the coast uh, for for decades and decades. And by 1981, which is when the main events of the book take place, this coastline had already earned the nickname the Cancer Belt. Um, it, it it is so bad that right now people in Sea Drift and other places have the along that coastline have something like 160 times the cancer rate the rest of the country. Um, I got to the point where I could tell who worked at what plant based on the type of cancer that they had, and. But there was a problem in terms of confronting all of this, which was that, you know, there was always, you know, the Texas bigwigs and the senators and the governor, all they wanted was short-term jobs. And they were willing to, you know, offer up the moon to these companies if they would build their plants there. They would give them tax abatements and, and you know, anything they needed. They would, you know, dredge the bays for, for larger ships to come in, give them more fresh water. And... People along that coastline that were making their living by fishing, they started to suspect these plants behind these mutated specimens and also just the dwindling catch. It wasn't just the plants. There were, there were also massive oil leaks and regular collisions of tankers out in the base. But it was really hard for anyone to take on those plants because a, a lot of the fishermen worked there in the off-season. Nearly all of them had family members that, that worked in these plants. Formosa and Dow and Union Carbide, they would also ingratiate themselves within the community, not just through contributions to the politicians, but through, you know, gifts to the local police station or to the local elementary school. And so people, you know, had a a, a reason to like these plants. Um, and But there was one woman who you mentioned, Diane Wilson, who she was a fourth generation Texan shrimper. She was the first, as far as I know, female shrimper on the entire coastline. And almost from the beginning, she sensed that these plants were, were spoiling the bays that she loved so much. And she started, while she was working at a fish house, um, keeping a kind of catalog of these mutated specimens, like actually physically storing them in a labeled bag in the freezer. She didn't really know why. She was just doing it because she sensed that it was important to keep this record. And it wasn't until 1989 when the first ever toxic release inventory was published, which was mandated by Congress, um, where companies were for the first time required to report their spills and their leaks and other emissions, that Diane opens the paper up and learns that her tiny little towny, uh, county of Calhoun County, home to maybe 20,000 people, was the most toxic county in America. And she's a mother of five young kids, and she's just in a rage. She balls up the paper, throws it against the wall, and storms down to City Hall and, and asks for a meeting. And she didn't really know why she was doing this. She just described it as almost being kind of like on autopilot, that she knew she had to do something. And that, that was the opening volley in a, in a war that is ongoing now, decades later, three decades later, and that has cost her nearly everything. I mean, in taking on this petrochemical industry to protect the bays for fishermen and others, uh, I mean, she, her marriage blew up, her kids were outraged at her for the amount of time that she was spending on the cause. 
she was getting routine death threats. Somebody from the woods shot at her home and and also killed her dog. Uh, somebody sabotaged her boat. She would go on month-long hunger strikes, pushing her organs to near failure. She almost took her own life in a period of despair. But she kept doing this, even though she became a total pariah in this town, until just two years ago, or three years ago, she made history. She won the largest ever settlement in U.S. history under the Clean Water Act um, from Formosa, uh, which was spoiling the bay with, with, you know, millions of these tiny little plastic pellets that um, that just sit at the bottom and accumulate toxins that are then consumed by crabs and shellfish and fish and all of that. So she now at 74 represents really like one of the last best hopes for saving these bays. Everyone thinks that she's a, a multimillionaire, but I can assure you she's, she's, she's not, she's living on $425 a month of social security and the rest of the money that that she won is is being put to use to try to revive this fishing industry. Whatever you do, don't take anything out of her freezer. Don't go near. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good advice. <laughs> really good advice. Don't go near there. <laughs> now, I'd like to skip to the very end. Talk about it. you don't just resolve it with Diane here. Uh, but I, I'm sorry, listeners. We're we're going to have to. Ha- you're going to have to read the book to get you get there on your own. But the whole book itself. You know, as 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 we saw, as I saw the whole arc, um, it it was a deep dive into investigating. How did you build this book? I discovered the story the day that my dad passed away um, from cancer that was spurred by Agent Orange during his deployment to Vietnam, and I didn't want to just sit around at home like it was a normal day. I felt this kind of overwhelming urge to to be out on a river and to go fishing because my dad taught me to fish. And so I threw my gear into the trunk of the car and and went into the southern Sierra Nevadas. And I had the radio on in the car, but I wasn't really paying attention to it until a song by Bruce Springsteen came on called Galveston Bay. And it's all about this white, uh, this Vietnamese refugee starting as a shrimper in Galveston Bay and then soon finding himself in a clash with the Klan. And I didn't know what Springsteen was talking about. I thought it was a, a made-up premise. But once I started digging around and realizing that it was a true story, I figured somebody else probably had already written the book. And when I realized that they hadn't, I then figured, oh, they're probably all dead. This is 40 years ago. They're either dead or everyone's probably forgotten all of the details. But I, I had a kind of extraordinary sequence of, of, of good fortune in that I quickly made contact with nearly all of the, the main individuals in this story and started flying down to Texas for, for lengthy, lengthy interviews. I mean, I, my, my MO is to not just do one two hour interview, but I, I usually will do three or four, seven hour interviews. And so there's times where I mean, with some of the main individuals, I must have done 30 or 40 interviews. And sometimes something incredible tumbles out in the 20th interview. I'm speaking with Kirk Wallace Johnson about the fisherman and the dragon, fear, greed, and a fight for justice on the Gulf Coast. We'll talk more after a break. 
individual BiotechNation podcasts can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Technation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, in biotech, we hear from Dr. Ernan Bassan, the co-founder and CEO of South Rampart Pharma. We talk about their efforts in non-opioid pain relief. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Kirk Wallace Johnson about his book, The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. There was also an incredible amount of coverage by local press back then that I was able to pull from the archives, some from newspapers that don't exist anymore. Um, I managed to dislodge thousands of pages from the FBI through FOIA requests. I flew down to Montgomery to the Southern Poverty Law Center where they had a case file on this um, with many thousands more pages. And so there was, for the first, almost for the first year of, of this investigation, I was doing nothing other than scanning, reading, taking notes, making phone calls, doing interviews, reading transcripts um, and really trying to wrap my head around who all the main figures were and, and then getting ready for what were sometimes confrontational interviews, um, but but making sure that I, I was going in as well informed as I could be. Now, I have two questions left. Well, one observation that I'd like your input on and, and, and one question, and, and the observation is, is while all of this is very local, uh, and there was some national coverage on on portions of it. Uh, I just felt like there were so many parallels nationally to today. We have multiple conspiracy theories, such as the theory that these were secret members of the Viet Cong. There was this spoiling distrust of federal government, especially by Vietnam vets. Hate and all that goes with it, uh, calls for new investigations, non-acceptance of judicial decisions, the assignment of motivations of others based on nothing, misinformation, all spoken to local media outlets and sometimes national ones. It all seems a lot like today, only they didn't have as many channels and they didn't have internet and social media. 
are those parallels true for you? Where, where do they work and where doesn't it work? It's a great point. I mean, part of the reason why I gave the book the title that it has is because I wanted it to evoke something of a parable that, that yes, while this is, this is very much tied to a place and time of the Texas coast in the late seventies, early eighties, what happened there is immediately recognizable in just about any town or industry in America today. We're talking about refugee bans. Uh, back then I was, you know, reading this white supremacist literature more than I ever cared to, but where they would be condemning the Vietnamese shrimpers for being here in America. And then in the next column over were schematics on how to build the American wall at the border and how to electrify it and, and all of this. So, so these are, this is this, the themes behind this book are coursing through the country today. There's, there's talk about that these immigrants were, these refugees were being brought here as replacements for white people and, and all of this nonsense. Um, to me, I always felt like if you're going to zoom out from this story, it's about a group of people, a group of white people who were part of an industry that was in decline. They felt that the world was changing too quickly for their liking. There were things that were confusing them about the way the government worked or about why their nets weren't as heavy as they used to be or whatever. Their kids weren't joining them in the industry. They, they looked into the future and they weren't optimistic. And there were all of these huge societal structural forces at work. Globalization and free trade deals that was making it cheaper for Americans to eat shrimp raised in a farm in Indonesia than it was to eat wild-caught gulf shrimp. As I mentioned, spoiling the estuaries and the ecosystems for these for these shrimp and crabs by for people's hotels and vacation homes and highways. And above all of that, the petrochemical industry. And yet it took a couple of demagogues or one main demagogue to whip these people into a racist frenzy against this tiny group of refugees, of people that didn't look like them. And those, that guy was saying, let's get rid of them and everything's going to be great again. And they brought shame to their name in doing so, in, in waging this campaign against them. They got dragged into court and they got destroyed in court. And guess what? It didn't matter because the bays are all dead now. There's nothing, no one's shrimping anymore in these bays. And in terms of the whole great replacement nonsense, you know, during the Trump administration, they throttled what's called the H-2B visa program, these short-term skilled laborers. And so for Gulf shrimping, which is, you know, these boats that go out for a month at a time, those were traditionally crewed by Mexicans and Guatemalans that would receive these H-2B visas and then go work for, for a month or two at a time and then go home again. Now they, they can't get the visas. And those the idea was, I think, in the kind of fevered mind of the Trump administration, that if we kill that program, that white people will take those jobs. But guess what? No one wants to do that work. And so those boats are now just tied up at docks right now. They can't find anyone to go do it. And that story is happening everywhere. So, you know, I'm always kind of horrified at the the ease with which normal people, 
you know, it's easy and tempting to think that this was all just a story about Klansmen. This wouldn't have happened without quote unquote normal white people who were just angry and were made themselves liable and vulnerable to being having this sort of racist switch flipped in them into blaming the littlest people around them. Like it, it's it always is amazing to me and depressing how easily that can be activated. Um, and, you know, it's not lost on me that the heroine of the book, the one person who could see clearly and who could correctly identify the true danger to this way of life was the only woman in the story, was the only female shrimper. So I don't know what that says, but it, you know, it doesn't say anything particularly good about the, the, the white men at the heart of this story. <laughs> well, it goes to listen to your mother. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. But that might not be true, but I'm going with that. I'm going with that. Now, my final question uh, is that you write in the author's notes, precision and truth are the lodestars of any nonfiction author, but sensitive to the toxic legacy of this language. I have no interest in tearing at old wounds or inflicting fresh ones. Now, tearing at old wounds, we can understand. You're digging up a lot of stuff from from many years. But what about inflicting fresh ones? How might you inflict fresh ones? Well, it's a, you know, we had a, a lot of discussions um, with the publisher uh, on this note because there was this this question, what what do you do with the N-word? What do you do with the G-word when it's being uttered by the head of the Klan um, during a rally where they're making these death threats to the Vietnamese? And, I mean, I'll be honest, the younger generation of staffers at my publisher, I think, preferred that I just not have the word in there at all um, and, and to replace it with quite literally, the N-word. Um, I should say the only time it's in there is in quotes. I'm obviously not using the word myself. But then that put me in this tricky position where I would be cleaning up the language of a hate monger, of a Klansman, and, and making him more presentable or less offensive to an audience. And I, I really wrestled with this because the Vietnamese did not have that luxury. Um, and and so in the end, I you know what we did was to take something like a, an essentiality test of like do we because there was so much toxic language um, uttered back then, not just back then, but also just in interviews with me that I had to kind of constantly question. Okay, like does the reader really need to hear it here in this time? Does he, does he need to does he or she do they need to hear it? five times from this guy is this is this enough but at the same time not polishing up anyone to make them go down more easily for a reader this is offensive hateful stuff and these words are are weapons and so i you know just like like if the, like an actual weapon you want to be careful with how you handle it so it, it was something that a lot of thought uh went into and i i, I hope i found the right balance well, Kirk, we haven't gotten to so much. You know, you mentioned the Southern Poverty Law Center. Maurice Deese plays a role in this. Uh, there is also this great lawyer in the first trial, 
switching the places of the two Vietnamese fishermen at the defense table during a break. So the witness identifies the wrong guy because they all look alike, you know. And this same lawyer in his closing argument takes a knife and impales it on the rail of the jury. I mean, I could go on and I could go on. There's plenty in here. This is, you know, you if you if this was non if this was fiction, it, you would say, oh, you wouldn't ever get away with that. It's like, oh, no, this all happened. So uh, I do want to thank you so much for all the all the effort and the care you took as you were just describing. And uh, and thank you so much for joining me. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. My guest today is Kirk Wallace Johnson. His book is The Fisherman and the Dragon fear, greed, and a fight for justice on the Gulf Coast. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. At some point in our lives, we all need pain relief, whether it's for surgery or due to chronic pain or for any number of medical conditions. But in getting that relief, there is also the specter of opioid addiction. I'm speaking with Dr. Hernan Bassan, co-founder and CEO of South Rampart Pharma and a professor of surgery and cardiovascular innovation at Oxner Health in New Orleans. Well, Dr. Bassan, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you are working in an area that I think everyone is 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 interested in, in the sense that we all need pain relief if we're going through a surgery, if we have some kind of injury, if we have some kind of chronic uh, condition, and yet we're all afraid of opioid addiction. How do we balance these two? How do we address this? Well, that's a real good question uh, in terms of what is the safe way of treating pain. And and it's, a, it's incredible because in the life science and biotech industry, there's been so many developments in oncology and new cancer drugs, cancer modalities, in uh, infectious diseases, immunotherapies. And the one space that, where there hasn't been really any pain innovation is any innovation has been in pain. Um, and um, specifically the medicines that we have, the opioids obviously really came to be in the 1890s with morphine and then repurposed uh, with heroin and, uh, and then uh, oxycodone in the 90s. And those have been, um, obviously we all know the, the deleterious effects of abuse with those. And then acetaminophen or in the U.S. Tylenol, and in world markets, Panadol, really came to be in the 50s. And since then, there's been no innovation in that in that particular space of pain. And then the other are the non-steroidals, like ibuprofen, Advil. Um, and that came to be a decade or two later, and there's been really no other candidates. Um, there are some that are in development, but they're fairly experimental. Um, and so the pain, the pain space is something that's for which there's been no innovation really for 40, 50 years. 
and as you mentioned, it's such an omnipresent problem uh, in the young, middle age, and old. How to treat pain safely without risk of abuse, without risk of liver injury, like is present in acetaminophen, or without risk of kidney toxicity, like with non-steroidals, like ibuprofen, or cardiovascular issues like elevation of blood pressure with NSAIDs. So if we were to characterize the problem with the pain relievers is that we either have some kind of addiction, which we do with the opioids, uh, or we can have liver toxicity, we can have any number of things, all of those together would be what we have to address with new pain relief. How would you actually list what the parameters are for solving this problem? So that's the essence of the question. How to avoid, avoid the abuse potential of opioids um, with um, overuse? And unfortunately, uh, three months after being exposed to opioids, a significant number of people that were opioid naive that had never been exposed are still using opioids. Um, and in the past uh, year, unfortunately, the overdose deaths were over 100,000, um, primarily because of synthetic fentanyl, but a lot of that started with opioid misuse. And the second challenge is um, how to avoid liver toxicity with Tylenol and Tylenol-like compounds uh, with its overuse uh, or misuse or inadvertent overdose. Uh, and then the third is how to avoid the kidney and cardiovascular effects like elevation in blood pressure in patients with high, hypertension with high blood pressure with N-steroidals, NSAIDs like Advil. And so those are the parameters to try to overcome and try to be a differentiator to try to improve and innovate in the safer treatment of pain. Now, your father, also Dr. Bassan, is a very famous scientist as well. And uh, the two of you, I know, are working together with, and with others. Uh, what are you trying to do? So together, what, what we began in late 2016 was a way to, to, to innovate the, the safer treatment of pain. Um, and we did this with a collaboration with a, with a chemist in Spain and, and then the university in New Orleans. And then after we had a library of compounds, we worked diligently to see what was safe and reproducible. And we found our candidates. Um, and there was a reason and rationale for designing the compounds in a certain way. And then we proved how it's not toxic to the liver, the two mechanisms of how it's not toxic to the liver compared to, say, Tylenol-like compounds. And so that was really the basis for which we then led and, and began the development, including understanding also how it works in the brain, what the mechanism is for how it leads to pain relief in the brain. So we have pretty good evidence and pretty good conviction that not only is it safe, um, without liver toxicity, because it, it is not an opioid. It doesn't have the risk of abuse. It lacks that abuse. And because it's not an NSAID like Advil, it doesn't have kidney issues. And so understanding the mechanisms, how it's not liver toxic, gives us a lot of confidence that it should be safe in humans, because after all, that's our priority, that the candidate be safe, and then that it works. And so since that time, we've been able to decipher through different ways how it works in the brain. And it interestingly works the similar way as Tylenol, um, which gives us confidence that it actually will work in humans when we get to those types of what are called efficacy trials like phase two and phase three. Well, I'm going to ask you a question that you may say, doesn't everybody know the answer? But I got a feeling a lot of people have this question. Let's say I hurt my arm. I bang it against something. Um, the pain is there, but is the pain really in my brain? Where's the pain? Well, it's a perception, and that's the thing about pain. 
that it's a subjective perception and different individuals have different thresholds for it. Um, it's interesting. So let's say that you go to the emergency room with a long bone fracture. Um, just to give an idea to the listeners, you know, it used to be that they would be given uh, an opioid intravenously, morphine or dilaudid, and to take care of the, of the pain. Now we know fairly with fairly good evidence from randomized trials that if those patients get uh, a large dose of Tylenol and Advil in combination, it's safe. As, it's as safe uh, and or as efficacious as 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 opioids. The risk is if those patients have liver or kidney toxicity effects from it. If they have some sort of liver or kidney predisposition, you know, there's a lot of obesity in the U.S. and a lot of NASH. I know you had an episode recently about NASH, uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatosis, liver disease, fatty liver disease. Those patients may not be able to tolerate high doses of, of, of Tylenol, like drugs. Or if someone has uh, cardiovascular disease and kidney issues, they may not be able to get a high dose of Advil. Um, but long bone fractures, the perception may be different among individuals, but certainly can be treated safely with non-opioids therapies. So I'm looking at my arm or my leg but the pain is actually registering in my brain. It's this, It's a peripheral sensation into the brain, and and we all have different thresholds of how we feel it. And so that's exactly right. And so the way that this candidate works is in the brain by in producing brain. a certain molecule through what are called the cannabinoid receptors that leads to a pain relief. Now, let me ask you another question that a lot of people are wondering about. Why are opioids addictive and the Tylenol-like and the Advil-like uh, substances are not. Yeah, that's just the basic way um, of how the signaling happens in the brain with what are called the opioid receptors, the mu and the kappa opioid receptors, and what's called the habituation. And basically, unfortunately, the, of, the building of what's called tolerance. So you become tolerant to a, a low dose, and then you need a higher dose. And the risk is, as that happens, once you get to a high enough dose, then you can start having problems. And the real problem is if you then stop breathing, respiratory depression. And that's the big risk. But the, 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 the habitual dependence from opioid misuse is all because of the way it works in the brain with the what are called the opioid receptors. So the Tylenol-likes and the Advil-likes, they hit a different part of the brain. Correct. It did not work on the opioid receptors. And so they don't have an abuse potential in terms of habitual or addictive potential. So this tells you that there's a lot of different places in the brain you can hit to try to go after pain. And that's where you're at. You're in another place in the brain. Now tell us... Uh, are you talking about something you can take orally? How does this work? Sure. So the what we have is we have an oral form that we've been able to develop that we're actually giving to humans now in a phase one trial. We've been able to develop it all the way to the clinic, and we're in a phase one trial with an oral form. We've also um, actually working with a company here in San Diego, where we are, you and I today, um, are uh, working with uh, a formulation company to do an intravenous form. And we've had success with that because the idea is to be able to deliver it orally as an outpatient, say, um, as a consumer product, or also uh, after surgery. So one of the big voids is the safer treatment of pain after surgery. So for example, you can't I say be, take a pill. Can't say take a pill after <laughs> surgery. And IV Tylenol works works really well after surgery to reduce the pain. You know, we see this all the time in our in our operating rooms. 
um, to reduce the risk of, of, uh, of opioid exposure or to minimize that risk, how much they have to be dosed, or even all opioids altogether. The risk is after a few days, it can't be used anymore because of the chance of liver toxicity. Or in patients with, again, fatty liver disease or other some sort of predisposing liver condition, they may not be able to, to get enough of it for pain relief. Now, two questions here. First, you know, you have to go into animals before you go into humans, and you've been through this journey. Uh, how do you tell if an animal has pain relief? Yeah, so that's that was one of the um, early experiments that we did to, to really convince ourselves, and that took about a good two years to convince ourselves that it was reproducible pain relief. And so as you could imagine, this is its own huge field. And so for this, we worked with the experts in the field and we brought some of that equipment into the group itself. We demonstrated in four animal tests, three of which the investigators were blinded as to who was administering, whether it was a placebo or sham drug or our compound or, say, Tylenol, and who was doing the readout. So they were what are called blinded. So we didn't know who was administering what. And then there are ways to automate automate how the pain relief occurs. So one of them is something that's pretty well described. It's called the von Frey with electronic testing. And you gauge how much pressure is induced in the hind paw of the animal without anything invasive. And then they withdraw depending on how much pressure is given. And the compounds, when there's an active compound that reduces pain, obviously you could imagine they withstand the threshold more. And that's what then we one can quantify. We can quantify. Well, you kind of brought me back to when I was a kid, and my brother used to like hold on to my finger, and then he'd hold on to my finger, and please, I'd be pulling the finger. It's the same sort of Similar. principle, but the hind Very legs. Very good analogy. So we yes. Know that. Okay, so now we actually are getting in the okay. Real people, humans are using uh, this compound in test. Of course, these are early days yet. How do you know it's not damaging the liver? Do you look? Do you see things in the blood? How do you know? Yeah. So obviously, the number one priority is that it's safe for us at this stage, of, by far. I mean, that's the the, the thing that um, we are the most concerned with. And luckily, um, we've been able to um, observe that in the ongoing trial. So the way that we're measuring it is the normal ways, which is doing seeing how they are in a clinical sense, observing them, the vital signs, and also doing laboratory draws. So the liver tests, the liver function tests are specifically being drawn, as well as kidney function, other things, coagulation, the blood counts, the chemistries, and, and a whole factor of other things, looking at the heart, the lungs. Um, and so all of those things are assessed to make sure there isn't something else we wouldn't be expecting. We, have, we had pretty good confidence that it would be safe because of the mechanisms, how we know it's not safe in, in the lab and in animals. And obviously, when you go to humans, sometimes there are things that are, you cannot predict. But we've been quite happy with the results so far in the phase one. Well, primarily you're working on oral administration, but you also want to give it in an IV so that the person doesn't have to be uh, awake and able to consume it to give the pain relief. But you're primarily focused on oral here. Where are you in the human trials? So right now we're, I would say, well along the phase one trial. We're about two-thirds of the way, and uh, we're it's Quite, all safety and toxicity. It's all safety, tolerability, toxicity assessment, and what are called pharmacokinetics. How is it absorbed? How is it distributed? You know, how can we measure it? What is the half-life? And we're, we're really happy with the results. Uh, we couldn't be happier with them, actually. And, and we know the market needs this. 
Um, we know patients need this uh, for their safer treatment of pain. Um, and what gives us confidence is really the science behind it that gives us a lot of confidence because we know how it's safe. Uh, again, we have to now prove it in humans. So your father, Dr. Nicholas Passan, enormous career. He's just, it's been terrific. You are building a career that's it's fantastic in its own right. How is it you work together? What does each contribute? How do you collaborate there? Well, uh, we, we began this really talking about it in late 2016 and, and for um, a couple of years is really getting off the ground by, um, like I mentioned, there's this collaboration with a, with a chemist that we know in Spain and um, then bringing it into, our, into his laboratory and his group to try to do what are called the killer experiments to make sure that we were, thought we were observing, we were observing and then understanding how it works. And so he's the scientific co-founder. And um, I'm the other co-founder, and we both bring in different aspects. Obviously, the, they have a tremendous amount of neuroscience, you know, brain research technology and techniques and expertise. They, they're hugely known for work in stroke and epilepsy um, and traumatic brain injury. So a lot of neuroscience. And then, obviously, I've, I've spent a couple of years at the NIH um, as Howard Hughes Fellow, and I have a translational program as well as my physician work. Um, I've been able to contribute more with the operational and the writing of the grant that we have from the NIH and being able to obtain the funding and moving the clinical protocols forward. That is great. I hope you come back and see us again. Keep us updated. Thanks for coming in. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for, for having us, for having me, Maura. It's been a real pleasure. Dr. Hernan Bassan is the co-founder and CEO of South Rampart Pharma in New Orleans. More information is available at southrampartpharma.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.